0: immune to Walker's vengeance
5: you're a very bad man Walker a very destructive man why do you run around doing things like this
0: feel the blast of emotions at point-blank range what do you want from me
4: Walker you're supposed to be dead
0: the mental agony that overwhelms and consumes at point-blank range. Experience rapid-fire action
1: at point-blank range.
0: Things aren't done this way anymore, Walker.
3: Let's be reasonable.
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers.
3: You're a very bad man, Walker. A very destructive man. Why do you run around doing things like this?
2: Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Netty.
5: I want my money. I want my 93 grand.
2: November 2021 continues as we look at John Borman's Point Blank. Released in 1967, the film was based on the 1962 novel by Donald Westlake, writing as Richard Stark. The film stars Lee Marvin as Walker, a man who was betrayed by his wife and best friend. Now he's back seemingly from the dead, and goes on a quest to kill his friend and get back the money he feels he's owed. We will be spoiling this movie as well as Richard Stark's The Hunter and the Brian Helgeland film Payback. So if you don't want anything ruined, go watch the movies, read the book, and come on back. We will still be here. So Jedediah, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think?
3: I was trying to think about when that was, and I'm not I'm not entirely sure. It's a film that i had been aware of for a while. I think I probably saw it in my late teens or early 20s before I knew that crime was my thing, before I knew who Donald Westlake or Richard Stark or John Borman were. And the, the strange thing is I know that when I saw it and picked up on what a special film it was, I'd already seen it before. I just, the first time I saw it, didn't make a whole lot of an impression on me. And then as I continued to watch it, I realized how strange it was and how kind of special it was. And of course, I I learned about all the ingredients that went into making it uh, very special, uh, the source material and, and, and Lee Marvin, et cetera. Yeah, I'm not really sure when the first time I saw it was, but I've seen it an awful lot now.
2: Andrew, how about yourself?
5: Yeah, it would have been uh the late nineties on VHS. Um I spent a large chunk of the nineties the working overseas and I'd come back to Australia in ninety-eight and I was unemployed and I had a lot of time and I was borrowing a hell of a lot of hell of a lot of movies from our local DVD library and this was one of them. And and much like Jed's experience, Really had no framework for it at the time. Hadn't developed my incredible man crush on Lee Marvin yet. Wasn't aware of where it slotted in in terms of cinema. Hadn't read any of the Westlake Parker books. So I came into it really cold. I mean, I liked it the first time I saw it. I very much remember that. But I've liked it more every time I've watched it, which is, um, you know, a lot of times. It's one of those films for me that... um, I always get something new out of it every time I watch it, some insight or some perception. I notice something about the film I haven't uh, noticed before. Yeah, it's such an interesting film in terms of of, of where it sits in Marvin's career, in terms of where it sits in in Job Borman, the director's career. I think it's really interesting in terms of, um, I suppose, noir in transition in American cinema in the 1960s and how it slots into American crime films in the 1960s. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about this film. I'm really looking forward to getting into it.
2: I think it was the line from Mr. Blonde in Reservoir Dogs where he says,
5: I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you?
2: Which pointed me in the direction of Lee Marvin, just because I knew of Lee Marvin, and I'd seen things like Emperor of the North Pole and The Dirty Dozen and things, you know, those dead for noon type movies. You know, I'd definitely seen those, but it wasn't until... Probably mid nineties where I was tracking down things like the killers and point blank and check out on 101, the, like just various Lee Marvin films. And when I saw point blank, it just blew the top of my head off. I was like, this is amazing. And I don't think that it gets talked about nearly as much as it should. A lot of people point back to things like Bonnie and Clyde, the Arthur Penn film and how that really injected european art film sensibility into american crime drama and you know set off this whole thing of people looking at the new wave in europe and bringing it into the u.s i would say the same thing happens with point blank it has that real new wave film i think there's even like a little bit of a nod to jules and jim with the relationship between mal and um, parker Sorry, Walker. I'm going to fuck up. I'm going to call him Parker a lot of times. (laughs) I'm not going to call Porter Parker, though. There's definitely a difference there. But Walker and Parker, very similar to me. And we should probably talk about the Westlake books, because they owe, a, a obviously, a huge debt of gratitude to what Richard Stark was doing, Donald Westlake was doing, with the Hunter. And the Hunter, I Re-listened to it. I've read it many times over the years. I've read a bunch of the Parker books over the years, and man, I love them because Parker is such an—I can't even say he's an anti-hero. He just feels like a non-hero. He's—he's the guy that you're super interested in what he's going to do, but you never know exactly what he's going to do because he's just a loose cannon.
5: I think where point blank sits in American cinema is really interesting. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. I just—I just. wrote something for the US site Crime Reads about this, about why it is that 1960s American noir cinema is a bit of a lost decade, I think. It's November at the moment. My Twitter feed, which is, is full of people talking about film noir from the 1940s and 1950s, which is great, but there's all these films made in the 60s in America that just do not get the love that they deserve, and I think it's a really strange period stylistically. There's no one body of stylistic sort of genre crimes film like neo-noir in the 70s or film noir in the, in the, in the 40s and 50s. And I think in that respect, Point Blank has a huge impact in terms of reinv- sort of publicly reinvigorating, I think, the American crime film. Um and it certainly rehabilitated, you know, the gangster film and led to that whole neo-noir renaissance in those in the nineteen seventies. And it's sort of in some respects, I mean, yes, Bonnie and Clyde, as you say, gets all the kudos. If for nothing else, for being a great film, but also for but also for that uh for re, for you know injecting all that violence into into the story, which was sort of seen as very radical at the time. But really, look at point blank. That's I mean it's got a very interesting take on violence which we'll talk about. I mean it's an incredibly violent film but the violence is also strangely very understated I think. It's I mean you know and I think it's as in, as influential a film as as Bonnie and Clyde.
3: When I think of my favorite 1960s crime films I'm thinking very much of mostly European crime films, a few Japanese uh, crime films and it's funny Point blank comes to the four of my favorite American crime films from the 60s, though I think it's kind of the least American feeling of uh, my favorites from the the 60s. It, it feels very European and even has some of that pop, very pop sensibility that that like the. Uh, Seijun Suzuki films that Japan had at the time, with the uh, the editing style and and, and um, uh, the the sort of psychedelic uh, colors and, and things like that going on. So um, it's an anomaly for me. I keep having to be reminded that it's an American film, though. Uh, of course, John Borman would bring some European sensibility with him.
5: The film I always think of when I think about Point Blank, and again, it goes to that thing about being a you know. Uh, so much noir cinema in in nineteen sixties America being lost or under underappreciated is Arthur Penn's Mickey One, which I think is which actually re- is a film I think is is similar in to, to Point Blank in the sense that it's it's got a very European sensibility to it. Some of the visual techniques in Mickey One are very similar in um, in Point Blank, but I mean Point Blank is a very interviewed film, you know, stylistically. Obviously,
2: I mean that we begin with a shot that is what about half an hour into the movie is the very first shot of the film with Lee Marvin, with all these colors over his face. And you don't necessarily know exactly why you're seeing that before you then switch to him being shot in Alcatraz. There's, Bigger circles, and then there's smaller circles within it, and we're just kind of like circling back as we go through. I'm making like curly Q motions with my hands as I'm I'm doing this because you start off with one thing, you finally catch up to that scene a little bit later in the film, and there are other smaller circles within that movement of the film, let's say. And I do appreciate how much this film, like you can really feel where the acts begin and end. And inside of each of those is a very distinct story. And we are taking Parker through all of these or Walker through all of these different movements of the, of the movie. And I just really appreciate how they handle that. And even going back to Arthur Jacobs' script, because he helped rewrite this with Borman after, I think it was David and Rafe Newhouse had their first version, and then Jacobs comes in with Borman. The flashback structure is inside of the script. It's not nearly as much as that final visual version that we see, but that idea of the fragmented narrative is there within that early version of the script which i really appreciate that it wasn't just like oh yeah then we decided to do this in the editing kind of like the limey and i thought that was very appropriate that soderbergh and Borman are doing the audio commentary at least on the old dvd because i think that the limey owes a lot to point blank sure the limey
3: does uh out of sight does um the underneath does all those uh it's very clearly formative film for soderbergh who i think of as a full filmmaker, but, but I, I, I really have always felt that his, his biggest strength is his editing. And, uh, you know, clearly this film had, had a big impact, big impact on that.
5: You get the sense that they, that they really pay out on the original script. And uh, they had that whole joke about, you know, uh, Borman sitting in a, Borman's telling that story about how he's sitting in a, in a, in a, in a hotel room with, uh, or oh, is it Lee? No, it's Lee, It's Lee Marvin's London apartment. And, um, you know, they're going through and, and he's, he's taken the script to Marvin and Marvin says, look, I really like this film, I want to do it, I think the character's really interesting, but I really hate this script so I'll do it on the condition that you get rid of this script. So he, he said, well, so he throws the script out the window and he jokes that, oh, you know, a young Mel Gibson was standing outside the window and sort of picked up the script out of the gutter and then basically went and made payback. Borman had no reference to the Parker books at all didn't think about them, didn't, didn't, probably, maybe didn't even read it because I went back and read, and this is getting back to your point about the Parker books, Mike, I went back and read the first, I've read them all, but I went back and read The Hunter. And it's, it's incredibly similar to Payback because I was surprised by how similar to Payback it is. But it's a, it's a really nasty, hardcore book. It's really relentless
2: And it's got an interesting structure, too, where we start with Parker and we follow the Parker story for a while. And then I think it's either part two or part three where we suddenly switch to Mal Resnick and his whole thing that's going on. And then we kind of get Parker rejoining the story already in progress as we go through it. And then Mal dies at one point. Good thing I said spoilers. But right before he dies, the whole narrative changes because the whole thing is. Parker wants to kill Mal, and I love how they describe how he wants to get Mal between his hands. He doesn't really use a gun. He wants to use his hands, and and the way that Westlake describes... Parker's hands throughout the entire book is fantastic, especially in the very beginning of the book. They talk about how his hands were sculpted by someone who thought big and liked veins and just like he his hands are curving down at his side. And when he's got Resnick between his hands, he realizes a little bit the futility of his quest and that now he wants to suddenly switch. And rather than just kill Mal, okay, I can still kill Mal, but I want my money. I want the money that Mal took from me. Fuck you, pay me. Fuck you, pay me. Fuck you, pay me. And ends up suddenly shifting to the last part of the book, where now it becomes a quest for his, in the book, it's $93,000. Or is it 93? Or is it 45? 45 in the book. No,
3: I think it's 93 in the book.
2: Is it? 70 grand in payback is incredibly small, and it's less than what he wants. I think it's... I can't remember it's 4593 and then 70. So regardless it suddenly shifts to that and I love how now he becomes this thorn in the side, the monkey in the wrench, the flying ointment for the outfit and that he wants to collect on this debt even though the outfit pretends that they're a company and they're just like, "Oh, well we would never take on that debt. What are you talking about?" and he just It's like, no, listen, I will unleash hell upon you unless I get my money. And I just love that. That sets up really the whole run through of so many of the Parker books where it's him, the lone individual against the outfit. And what the fuck are you going to do to me?
3: You bring the structure into the conversation from the books, because as much credit as I think Borman uh, deserves for for the, the structure of the film the non-linear structure is in the first book and continues throughout the Parker series. I've not read all of them as as Andrew has. I've, I've read nine or ten of them. It is something that that continues there, where they do kind of like a four-act structure, where the third act is usually jumping backward in time and 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 changing point of view to the the antagonist and and yeah, so that, that is something that that does come from. From Westlake, though, uh, to Andrew's point, payback. Frankly, the story in 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 the remake is is a lot closer to to what the hunter is. I don't know. Maybe it's early to to say so, but uh, in revisiting a lot of Borman, preparing for this, I I really came to see Point Blank as kind of an Arthurian uh, story where he's betrayed by his his best friend and his wife and then sets off on a quest, you know, not for the holy grail, but this time to give meaning to his uh, existence and 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 set the kingdom right. You know, he he's got to set off on this quest for this this money and he just he kind of comes up against barrier after barrier, obstacle after obstacle and just kind of takes him down, proves his metal. Each time out, Arthur is is definitely something that echoes throughout Borman's filmography, and um, I do think
2: that it's. I have not read the script. Maybe that's what Borman responded to in the original script. I'm not sure. He definitely recognized that as well. I think he even calls the uh, Yost character, the Kena Wynn character, a Merlin figure. The way that he shows up, yeah, and just kind of, like, helps push along the narrative. I mean, because Yost is kind of magic, the way that he shows up, the way that he knows where Parker's going to be, sorry, where Walker's going to be every step of the way. I think he definitely recognized that as well. Maybe not at the time, maybe not in 1966 when he's shooting this, but I think he definitely looks back on it as, like, yeah, this fits with the things that I've been interested in.
5: On every viewing, I get something new of this film. And on this particular viewing, which probably was my seventh or eighth, I was really focused on the Yost character. And as you say, Mike, the way that he just appears everywhere, probably because I was also thinking about that whole thing of um, that whole um, debate, which Borman, and and fair enough to completely, dismisses as to whether it's a ghost story, you know, as to whether Point Blank is about Marvin the entire film of point blank is marvin sitting dying in a cell in alcatraz after he's been shot sort of imagining his revenge so and in that respect the yost character is very much a ghostly i love i love the idea of merlin i hadn't thought about that at all but i think yost you know keenan wins yost character as a sort of a ghost that floats in and out to help back to help help the dying walker make sense of his dreams but again picking up on how we're talking about this it's a very it's a hard film to get a grip on, isn't it? Where do you start with the discussion of Point Blank? And I mean, Borman bought a number of things to it. I mean, Borman bought a foreigner's eye to LA, which I think is very apparent in the film. I think I hadn't thought about it, but I think your comments, Jed, about the way that the whole Arthurian, the whole Arthurian thing, which he, he injected into it, is a really interesting perspective. I'm going to have to think about that that more. He's at a particular point. In the studio system, Borman's coming in here, and I love, what I found really fascinating in Borman's commentary with Soderbergh on Point Blank is that he's talking about the fact that he, he doesn't say it quite like this, but it, 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 the, the subtext is: you know, MGM's kind of in crisis. It's it's not it's not really working. Their films aren't really working, and it's part of that broader thing that's going on in the US film industry in the late nineteen sixties where. So much is changing. Their films aren't quite keeping pace, and these big studios are prepared to take a risk on a film that they would never, you know, not normally take a risk on. And Borman is there to capitalise on that, helped with by Marvin, who of course throws his weight behind it. But I loved Borman's talking about the fact that I'm I'm making this intensely modern, strange, new wave crime film. In the shell of this production company, of this of this big studio, where they've still got a whole costume department, they've still got people who make sets, they've got all this sort of old school sort of you know MGM infrastructure around it, but it's sort of it's it's dying and it's sort of desiccated, which is another really interesting aspect to the film, and I think why Borman able to get away with such a developing such a strange. F- strange liminal film that you know it, it, it is very unlike a lot of what came before it.
2: Yeah, I don't think enough can be said about how important Lee Marvin is to the making of this film that he took a chance being this character that he took a chance on Borman. Borman had only directed one feature before this, but they really got along and I love this whole idea of Borman and Marvin meeting with the studio and saying Marvin says I've got full script approval, right? I've got this approval. I've got that approval, just kind of like flexing his muscles. And the studio's like, yeah, yeah, that's how it is, that's how it is. And then he's like, okay, I seed everything over to this man and points at Warman and just walks out. I'm just like, that's it. You know, he's got full control. I trust him implicitly. We're off to the races now.
5: Walker is this sort of walking piece of traumatized, fucked up masculinity which maybe without the fucked upness you know you is a sort of similar is an apt description for also Marvin which is you know been written I mean been written about quite a bit i mean that's Marvin's you know his whole performance it's almost it's almost like he's acting as himself you know half half the time and i think there's again that that's in that Borman commentary but and i, and I focused a lot on this in this particular viewing the way that his performance contains no pretense or method acting. You know, his, his reactions—confusion, anger, determination—they feel his reactions in this film feel very real. And you know, you can sort of—I suppose you can sort of see, although I might be reading a bit too much into it—that he's really drawing very heavily on his own experience with his own inner demons, including his World War II experience, which culminated in you know him being wounded in um, in the battle for Saipan. This is something I think you can really see in, the whole, in his, whole, um, his whole performance. And I, I think the Donald Zick, there's a, there's, a, there's a Donald Zick book from 1979, Marvin, the story of Lee Marvin, who discusses how the film was a sort of risky career move for Marvin, given its subject matter and its violence. He took a big risk on the role, which was sort of seen as a bit of a dicey role for him, a bit of a dicey film with a, with a new director, could have gone pan-shaped, instead it became a classic.
2: I really noticed this time the last time watching it was the use of color in the movie. And I know that Borman, we've talked before on the show about how Borman was very into color theory. I mean, making Leo the Last with Mastery and Tony, where it um is essentially a black and white film that's in color, that he desaturated everything that he possibly could. And he did very similar things with Exorcist 2, where he took certain colors out of the color palette. And the way that this movie starts off, you know, with that splash of color on Lee Marvin's face. But then once we get into the narrative proper, let's call it, because we again kind of start at, well, I don't know, with time is very loose in this movie. We start with that moment in the cell where he's been shot in Alcatraz. But then we kind of move to the San Francisco narrative where it's him starting to, have his uh, revenge. And I wanted to talk about Lynn's apartment, uh, just how silver all of that is. And then he is dressed in the exact same color as that. But even before we get to that apartment, I do need to talk about, you know, we, we've we mentioned the Yost character, this Keenan Wynn character. You could write a whole term paper just on the first 20 minutes of this film because there's so much great stuff going on. Like starting with Walker in that cell, showing him, making it out to San Francisco Bay. And I love the way that they shoot it where it's all like these tableaus. Like I love the one, especially where it's Lee Marvin on a fence with his arm over the barbed wire fence. And it's just a shot of that. And it's like, it could be a still, but it's not because the there are birds flying through it. And it's a whole series of these shots of him making it from that cell and then they're intercutting it with things that happened in his life to lead him up to this moment. And I love the stuff with him and Mal Resnick, the John Vernon character where they're in this crowd of all of these men and you have no idea what's going on. And then Mal basically tackles him to the ground. And it's just this shot of them on the ground with Mal on top of him, like, just pleading with him that he needs his help and all of these men's legs there around him i love these shots they're just so phenomenal and this is even before we have walker even say one line of dialogue to another human being and it's just all of this stuff that led him to this moment
1: i need your help
5: don't you understand i need your right. help what do you
3: do yeah there's opening uh opening moments of him In Alcatraz, or I should say, the the credit sequence of him sort of waking up in the cell. And then before he's even off the island, you start getting the tour guide's description, you know, accounting of, of Alcatraz Island, of the prison, of different escape attempts.
5: This is the cell for solitary confinement that over the years had
3: come to be known as Times Square. And the very first shot of him posed up on the fence with the arm over That's the first escape attempt from Alcatraz in 1936. That's Joe Bowers shot off the fence trying to escape. And then in 1937, there's the folks swimming off and he's getting into the water and swimming off. uh, You know, and then Yost, of course, is like, how did you get off the island? And it's never answered. But um, it's a it's a very cool, very cool setup, uh, the way they,
5: they do that. Well, and he's he's on that boat. Why would he come back? Yeah, well, but that's the thing, and the, and the, and the, and, the, and the guide is saying on the on the loudspeaker, no prisoners ever got off the island. It does encourage that ghost story sort of thing. And then I agree with that scene where he's there, when he's walking. I think he's walking through. Is it LAX? Yeah, yeah. That with the incredible shoe jump, 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 jump is absolutely incredible.
3: I tried to do that at LAX, by the way, and it didn't. It didn't happen.
2: Uh- <laughs> You didn't have the shoes.
5: <laughs> it's hard to do it in your converse, yeah and, and it intersperses, he's walking down that um, that hallway and it intersperses with scenes of Lynn who you know at the beauty at the hairdressers and doing things like that that she's going to a flat and he just bursts in like this wrathful spirit and, and shoots all these holes in the bed. you know it's incredible and then that whole se- that, that whole sequence when he's in Lynn's when you, and then Lynn's talking you know he's sitting on the couch exhausted
2: oh and his, his his gun is spent and I love how he's holding his gun there too
5: and Lynn is talking to him and he's just and, and she's not replying to any of her questions he, she's just talking which apparently um, that was Lee that was Marvin um, ad-libbing that uh, he just wouldn't reply to anything that the who was the, the actress was um, Sharon Acker wouldn't reply to anything that Acker was saying and she just kept going
4: Walker Reese isn't here he's gone Three months ago, gone, cold, moved out. Walker, I'm glad you're not dead. It's true, I really am. You ought to kill me. I can't sleep. Haven't slept. Keep taking pills. About you. How good it must be. Being dead. Is it?
5: No. No, I can't. And then there's that weird those weird scenes where then Lynn Lynn commits suicide with the pills. And Walker's walking around the flat, and every time he walks into a different room it's kind of changed. Like he walks he walks into the room after I think finding, I'm not sure of the precise um, sequence of events, but there's one scene where he walks, he finds Lynn, I think, and then he walks into back into the lounge room of Lynn's apartment and it's empty. And then he walks back into Lynn's bedroom. And I can't remember. I think I'm getting the sequences out of order, but there's a point where he walks into Lynn's bedroom and the body's gone and there's just the stripped bed with the bullet holes. And it's quite an incredible first 30 minutes, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Well, even when Yost is talking with him, I finally noticed that they don't look at each other.
3: Never, ever, are,
2: ever, yeah, ever. it's fantastic. One time. I love that. They look at each other
3: uh, one time it, it, in that first conversation when uh, Yost says, I'm here to help you. And then they both kind of turn and look at each other for one second. And he holds up the address. He says, this is Lynn's address, Mal's with her. But yeah, that for the rest of the time. And even even when Mal's talking with uh with Christine with the Angie Dickinson character and things like that, they're often staring in different directions. And there, there there's a lot of that throughout the film. Going back to the color palette in Lynn's apartment, you know, listening to the, the commentary, it took that for me to to say, Oh yeah, okay, this is what he's doing. He's which is of course something Westlake did. Uh, by warming up the colors slowly in his script for, uh, Stephen Freer's adaptation of The Grifters was, uh, start very monochromatic and, and, you know, by the end have Angelica Houston in that red dress and, and, uh, you know, blood everywhere and, you know, just kind of gradually warm up the, the color tone. Borman does that in, in point blank gradually changes the color palette into warmer tones. And, and that, that early scene is all gray. It's almost black and white, like you said, Andrew, that, but it's also inversely. That's the, f- the only scene that Parker's really passionate in the rest of the movie. He's, he spent his passion is spent. He bursts in on her, shoots the hell out of the bed. And then he sits there holding that empty gun totally spent you know there was definitely a a, some sexual overtones to that that event shooting up the bed where he was just shot in the bed in uh in alcatraz and left there and then he comes back and uh but that's his only passionate moment the rest of the movie he's pretty just blank i mean yeah he springs into action when when it's called for but there's no real emotion that he's got the rest of the movie. Just that one scene at the very beginning when, when the rest of the, the palette is very cold, he's extremely hot. And then as the palette warms up, he's blank.
5: Throughout the rest of the film, he's just, as I say, he's just traumatised. I mean, one of the things that I, again, one of the things I really picked up on on this latest viewing is the way that Borman plays back key scenes of violence, which is Walker's character playing back all this violence he's had to commit and his sort of profound trauma and ambivalence about all of that. I mean, there's that incredible scene with Carol O'Connor Brewster, the first time he confronts Brewster and he's waiting behind the door and Brewster walks into to that uh, to that uh, house that, that he, you know, Walker's waiting for him in and then it, Brewster's goon is carrying the bag and then, Walker just takes care of Brewster's goon, and they basically then play just this really quick grab of a, of one of the shots from that amazing nightclub fight, and that happens throughout the film. It's an incredible. When I say it, it, it's a very violent film, but it's a, at the same time also has this almost strange critique of violence in it through through it, seeing it through through the trauma of of what Walker what Walker's been through and what he's doing. He's there's no joy in this, which is again one of my. We'll get onto this later. One of my criticisms of the the payback, you know, what I think it's the um, one of the versions of payback. It, there's not. We're not playing this for laugh. There's no joy. There's no slapstick in this. We're, we're we're not we're not a lethal weapon cop. You know, we don't like we don't. He doesn't really want to have to do this. He finds it incredibly painful, and it's making him relive all this stuff with with Lynn, his wife, with being you know being betrayed by Mal. It's it you know very effective. I think.
2: I want to stay with that Carol O'Connor scene real quick, because when O'Connor confronts him and says, I don't believe you, that you're trying to upset this whole organization for $93,000, I just don't buy it, Walker has a look on his face like, okay, like he feels very taken aback in the way that he's just like, "Uh, no, I I just want my money. And it's like, are you saying that to convince Carol O'Connor, Brewster, or are you trying to... Are you convincing yourself? Because, again, he sits down on that couch and it just looks defeated. And I'm like, okay. in the way that Carol O'Connor remains standing in that scene and he just sits on the couch for the whole rest of the scene, even though he's kind of in charge and in power. But O'Connor is just this force of nature just rallying at him and he's just like. No, i i want my money like i love the acting that he does in that scene it's just terrific and he and carol o'connor together oh my god i mean you know jed you started the the show with that incredible quote from o'connor i just love when he's just like
5: you're a very bad man walker a very destructive man why do you run around doing things like this what do you want i want my money i want my 93 grand ninety three thousand dollars You threaten a financial structure like this for $93,000? No, Walker, I don't believe you. What do you really want? I I really want my money. Well, I'm not going to give you any money, and nobody else is. Don't you understand that? Who who runs things? Carter and I run things. I run things. What about Fairfax? Will he pay me?
1: Fairfax is a man who signs checks. Cash? Cash, checks.
5: Fairfax isn't going to give you anything. He's finished. Fairfax is dead. He just doesn't know it yet. Somebody's got to pay. He doesn't get
3: second billing in the movie does he he's 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 one of the top billed performers in the movie he's only in the last five ten minutes of the movie which is fantastic but uh what a great entrance i like that he's just all the stuff he's bitching about on the way to the house <laughs> you know
5: ah, the pool's cold. all those organization guys though are really good i mean uh you know uh lloyd bockner as carter he's also really good and that's what I think it's a really one of the really interesting things in the film is this: the organization as sort of corporate entity that sort of sucked the life out of everything run by these guys who are essentially a bunch of sort of like middle aged, they've got soft. And this is a, a thing that comes out very much in the in the Westlake books, in the in the in the Richard Stark books, is that the you know, the organization's got soft, it's basically become a, a victim of its own success. And it's really easy for a lone operative like Parker just to sort of take it apart. Carter's character, the first time he has, you know, when Carter's talking to to, to Mal Resnick, and he, he just basically sounds like a sort of the most greyest bureaucratic accountant type executive. I just, you know, and that and that's the organisation. And the only other person who can sort of see the dynamics that's going on, obviously, is Yoss. But can we just sort of for a moment talk about, I'm not sure if I'm going to get his second, his second name correct, but James Sicking, who plays the assassin? Who I always also think of from Hill Street Blues.
2: And I love that he's got that same pipe that Howard used to have in Hill Street Blues.
5: And he's he's sort of he's another loan operative. And again, he's taught, he has that great interaction with Brewster Carol O'Connor's character, where he's you know he's trying to get his money out, his money back to him. And he said, "Well, look, you know, you made a deal with Carter. Carter's dead now, so I mean, you know, your deal dies with him." And, James and the assassin guy says you don't you don't sort of see what's happening with this you don't just see just how dangerous Walker is he's just taking you apart
3: I'll wait for Fairfax he'll pay me <laughs> and then O'Connor says yeah and if he doesn't you can kill him too but of course the switch at the end is I, I, I'm not sure the switch works much for me but uh, at that point it's kind of it's kind
2: of moot um, uh, it's been such a great ride getting there you mentioned that fight at the club and so one of the next steps that Walker does he, well, first he visits big John Stegman played by Michael strong, who I always love Michael strong. He's so great. Um, it, it's kind of funny. He and Keenan Wynn were both, uh, antagonists for Colchak in the night stalker. So that was kind of a nice thing for me, but, um, Michael strong here is big John. And I forgot just how lascivious he is when he is just, drooling over that blonde who's buying a car and the way he comes up and puts his hands on her it's just like oh man but he's just again so full of himself doesn't think anything can touch him oh here's this rube who wants to buy this car okay let's go out for a test drive and then i love you know we'll say it right out walker doesn't really kill anybody in this movie it is all other things the closest he comes to is he kills this car and he just does all this damage to the car and i love especially when later on while they're in the car that the big john stegman car commercial comes on i know that he says like oh uh, let me turn on the radio i want to hear my commercial and i love that it plays that confident stegman against this stegman who's just had his ass handed to him by running you know i love Walker putting on the uh, seatbelt, and he's just like, "Oh, you know, you're being overcautious or whatever." And then, nope, we're gonna see why Walker's wearing that seatbelt. It's one of the great things.
3: I love that 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 scene gets replayed uh, in Walter Hill's The Driver and in uh, FX. There's also uh, an interrogation scene that happens that way. So uh, I think this movie, this movie's influence is kind of spiderweb out like that. You can you can see it in, uh Little scenes here and there.
2: I would say even in The Last Seduction, when she takes care of uh, is a Bill Nunn, when uh, she knows that she's got airbags and he doesn't.
5: Yeah, she wants to see his dick. Again, just another venal operative of that venal corporate entity that is, that is the outfit. We haven't talked very much about Chris, Angie Dickinson's character, and the way that uh, the outfit has just sucked the life out of her. Turned her jazz club into a, um, a sort of go-go dancing bar, has basically you know, made her just miserable.
2: I kind of wonder about the trumpet player that she was going out with, what ended up happening with him.
5: I assume the outfit killed him.
2: That's what I'm thinking because yes. it it feels like maybe Mal might have had a a hand in that because he just really wants her and I do like how Stegman's like yeah he's sleeping with Chris both sisters I'm like okay <laughs>
5: <laughs> but also how how horrible is Mal given what he would subsequently go on to be in you know I mean you, you we look at I look at Mal I don't know what audience is made of. John Vernon's character, Mal, when they first saw him. I think it was a very early role for, for Vernon. First film. Right. Okay. so And and, and then there's that whole thing that uh, Marvin originally didn't want him, didn't think he was tough enough or mean enough. But subsequently what he was in, the mayor in Dirty Harry, the dean in National Lampoon's Animal House. He was in Fear is, Fear is the Key. He was in Charlie Varrick, And he always played these sleazy, nasty, author, you know, people who tried to, to punch above their weight, but they were kind of pretty, pretty crap, and they always get their just desserts, you know. But he's terrific in this. You? You're Mr. Big?
1: But I thought you were...
5: What? Above playing an exploitation villain? Well, you're wrong. Lots of famous people have done exploitation movies. Uh, Shelley Winters was in... Uh... Cleopatra Jones. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Angie
2: Dickinson. Uh, uh, Big Bad Mama. Big Bad Mama, Jamie Lee Curtis.
5: Halloween. Halloween! Right, right, right. And now, I'm Mr. Big. And I'm sorry, boys, but there ain't going to be a sequel to this one.
3: Yeah, he goes up to be the antagonist for John Wayne and Brannigan and Clint Eastwood and the ally of Josie Wells in a similar role where they were friends first and now they're antagonists. I mean, this is one one area where i think point blank is actually i prefer this part of it to the hunter one part about the hunter that i didn't ever quite buy was parker's walker's wife's betrayal in the book it's very it's a it's like a last second thing hey i'm going to i'm going to kill your husband and if you don't take care of him first i'm going to kill you too The logic of it never quite, quite got to me. Uh, I didn't, didn't ever buy it. And and as much as I don't buy somebody, a woman preferring uh, John Vernon's Mal over uh, (laughs) Lee Marvin, um, it it still makes more sense that it was an affair of the heart. It was was something you know that there was an affair going on there before there was this last second betrayal where she kills her husband
5: which Borman does incredibly impressively just from that one scene when the three of them are driving in the front of the car. Lynn is in the middle between uh, Mal Resnick and Walker, and she Lynn takes the uh, – Walker's, we- Walker's wearing sunglasses. She takes the sunglasses from Walker's face, puts them on her own, and then swaps them to Vernon.
2: And then you get that two-shot. I love how it goes from a three-shot into a two-shot. Absolutely and
5: it's like, astounding. All right. Yeah, yeah. Less is more,
2: and this one gives you like that whole idea of of Mal and Walker at that um, uh, where all the men are. I guess that was some sort of reunion. I'm guessing they were probably in a boys' school together, and this was all of. My, that's my guess is that they were in a boys' school together, and they're all coming back together, and this is all the classmates. But it was just because it's so strange that it's just all men, all in this one place, all dressed up together. And so it kind of makes sense as far as like them being old friends and the way that they have that, that flashback also reminds me a little bit of the, we'll always have Paris scene from Casablanca as well. Just it's so it's, it's saccharine, but in a good way to, especially to be like, yeah, we were happy once. Don't you remember how happy we were? And the three of us all hung out and then this betrayal happened. So it makes it even worse that, I think this betrayal is worse than the betrayal in The Hunter because they were together and that he was really being cuckolded by Mal rather than it just being like you were saying that spur of the moment. Oh, I want this girl and I'll have her kill her husband. Otherwise, I'll kill her. And it's like, OK, yeah, I don't really buy that too much either.
3: I love the, the meeting scene in this where uh Lynn is talking about how they met. He was drunk. And so was I. And the, the visuals are them walking along a pier with a bunch of, like, merchant seamen or, you know, some sort of sailors. It's like, she just hung, hangs out drunk on a pier.
2: She digs you know, stevedores. Like, what are you going to say? She's
3: sending out some signals here. I don't know. With the, they had a connection, I guess. But, um, but that but or Lynn calls it a reunion. But also, Mal says to Carter when Carter is asking who uh, Parker is or who Walker is, he he just says Walker, he never ever called himself anything but. And so it seems weird to think that it was a school reunion and he didn't, he didn't know the the kid's first name, but, but yeah, it looks, it looks very much like a a class reunion of some kind.
5: So I thought they were old army buddies. I thought that was some sort of army. That's how, which just fits into that whole Marvin as traumatized, you know, war veteran. I just considered one of the things you know that's always attracted me to Marvin is that he's very much sort of my father's generation, and my my father had uh, some some traits in common with Marvin, which we don't need to go into. But one of the things that uh, and, and was a was a was a World War Two veteran, and I just I just 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 fitted in, just slotted in for me that you know they were army buddies, although maybe actually. Mel Resnick was maybe a bit too young to be in the army, I don't know. So maybe it was a boys' school. Who knows? It is a weird it was a weird intensely male sort of scene though. That's that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, who's no one knows anyone's name. It's all so disembodied. There's that great scene when when um Angie Dickinson, Chris's character, says That's my last name. What's my first name? You know, well great. You know, no one knows anyone in this world. It's fantastic.
2: And poor Chris, oh man, just yeah. You're talking about how she does seem like she's had the life drained out of her, and that he uses her as this pawn. Yeah, and I, I mean That's it's like really vicious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But before we even talk about that much, I want to talk about the club scene because I love that club scene. I love how he knows the waitress and is getting information from her. I love the whole fight behind the screen. The use of lights and that is fantastic. And then that I'm putting this in quote singer with this whole screaming thing that he's doing. And I love that the fight is very quiet as far as, you know, noises, but then you've got the screams going on on the other side of the screen. And I love how we cut the, especially towards the end of that fight, when we have the close-ups of the singer kind of the, I want to say it's like a wide angle lens with him screaming. And then one of the, uh, patrons of the club responding with a scream. And then you cut to the girl who has seen all the violence or s- sees all these bodies laying behind the screen, her screaming. I just really like how they do that. And one of the things that I really appreciate about that fight is Walker just going to town on guys nuts like crazy. He just punches people in the nuts. Like it's going out of style.
3: He does. And getting back to the passion in him is gone. I think in the, the gray color scheme uh, scene where he shoots up the bed, this is extremely colorful scene. It's like the colors being painted on him. He's exhausted uh, from the fight and he, he did what he had to, to 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 prevail, but it wasn't particularly passionate. It's just like there's his exhausted face and there's all this color being blasted onto him. And uh, it was Similar, of course, to Zardos, uh, scenes in that uh, where uh, the different characters have have different images projected onto onto their faces and bodies. And um, I don't know, maybe that was just something Borman was getting into at the time.
2: Well, it is very 1960s. I mean, it does feel like, you know, the go-go club. It feels like the kind of place that I would like to be hanging out. Maybe if it was the Velvet Underground playing instead of the screaming guy, I'd be a little bit happier.
3: I don't know. I think I'd go see the screaming guy first. that uh I liked his uh faux James Brown. He definitely thing. gets the audience going.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: He <laughs> he's like the Van Morrison of you know, he's like you don't need lyrics, you just ooh ah ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I thought that he was an ardent Brexiter and a uh, anti vaxxer. That's when you said that it was like Van Morrison.
5: You're gonna get a comment about that, Mike. You know you know that. You know that.
2: One star. Golly. He does end up pimping Chris out and man, Angie Dickinson is so good in this movie. And apparently she didn't like Lee Marvin very much because of some stuff that had gone on on the killers. So I, I heard that when she ends up beating him up, uh, in the one scene that she just was letting him have it. And it looks like it. It looks like Lee Marvin is just taking everything that Angie Dickinson is giving him again, he's just a stone wall and she's got all the passion because she's so mad at him for what he did with Lynn, what he just did to her with Mal. I mean, he doesn't come in like the white knight and save her. I think that she ends up having to sleep with Mal before he finally makes it into the hotel room to kill him.
5: I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, to not kill him,
2: to not kill him. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah with the intention of killing
5: him that's that's a terrific scene though again that's that you know and she put, he, they sort of argue and he leads it kind of he kind of does kill kill Mal and doesn't kill mal but that's a terrifically effective scene where Mal basically you know ends up falling nude off the off the balcony and again I think it's very much of its time in terms of that violence that's going through American society in the late 1960s fascinating all these people. Are just rubbernecking around the body, and there's a couple of. I think I think there's one scene where there's a there's a couple of girls just chewing gum, just sort of looking down. A couple of teeny boppers chewing gum, just looking looking down at this crushed body on the pavement, which is you know sort of blends in nicely with the whole with the sort of themes of violence in the film. I think you know, I I meant to check out because I I think it's the Borman again, the Borman Soderberg commentary. I know which we reference a lot. It is a really good commentary. Where one of them is that Cop Borman said that Angie Dickinson was pissed off with Lee Marvin because he dangled her out of a apartment, a, you know, a high rise building window during the Killers. Which I meant to go back and check. Did that actually appear? Did that actually happen in the Killers? Or this is a I 19- don't
2: remember that
5: the nineteen sixty four version of the Killers. And I thought I don't. I've seen that film several times. Another great Marvin film. I don't remember that. Anyway, she was pissed off about him with something. That's for sure.
3: In Ship of Fools, Vivian Lee also beats the shit out of him with a shoe in a very, I mean, I haven't seen the film, but I've just seen like that clip of Vivian Lee just hitting him super hard <laughs> with a shoe and just like over and over again and knocking him to the ground actually and smashing. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe that was his thing, just kind of dangling co-stars out of, uh, out of windows and for motivation.
5: So when, when he's being beaten up with that shoe does he does he feel like he's taken the pain or does it actually look like it's hurting or cuz that's the thing when when Angie Dickinson's laying into him he just stands there like an automaton.
3: Yeah, no that's that's true. Uh he he falls down but uh, he doesn't he doesn't look entirely it looks like she's really passionate about it but it doesn't doesn't particularly look like uh, like it caused him a lot of pain.
4: Get out!
2: No, I'm sorry. I truly am sorry. I didn't know it, it was just... Hey!
4: hey! what the hell? Go on! Get out! Get, Get, Get up!
2: Get up! Get up! One thing I do appreciate is that they, in this version, he... Has these two gay guys that are across the way that he I, I can't even say he ties them up because he has them tie themselves up, and I'm so glad that they're not portrayed as these like flaming queens that is just this idea of like here are two gay gentlemen that are living together in this apartment. It feels like, and here you go they are a diversion that we're gonna use to get the guards to come out of the the hotel across the way. Including Sid Hague is one of the guards. I always forget that he's in here, but then yep, when he shows yep, up yep. and I recognize him, I'm like, Oh my God, it's Sid. This is great. Yeah. They don't camp up these two gay guys, which makes sense because I don't know if we've come out and necessarily said it outright, but there's a huge homoerotic thing going on between Walker and mal that you know even with the first time we see mal with you know on top of walker at that reunion i mean there's constantly like the the way that he won't let mal get dressed when he is threatening him in his apartment or his hotel room it's just like there is always this thing it feels like He's using Chris to get to Mal. He's using Lynn to get to Mal. It's like there's always the the use of the woman in between those two men, but it feels like those two men definitely have something going on together. And we've talked about the sexuality of the gun and all that, and that he is so passionate when he comes in and starts shooting that bed where he thinks Mal's going to be, and then he comes down from that high and uh, just kind of walks through the rest of the movie.
3: The, the two homosexual gentlemen in the apartment is actually an uh, addition to the script. In the book, it's a lot more brutal. He actually kills a woman who lives in the apartment across the way. It's it's accidental, but he doesn't feel bad about it. He just he kills a woman. Calls in the police and says, "Hey, there's a dead woman in this shop across the way." <laughs> and so it's the same. It's the same diversion. The police are coming across the street, and he uses that as an escape. But it's it's another instance of as brutal as the film is. It's a lot softer uh, than the book. You know, when in the book, in, uh, Lynn when his, he taunts her into killing herself. He tells her, you, you know, if you want to get over your guilty conscience, you should just kill yourself, basically. And then when she does, yes, there's some feeling there. He dresses her body up in a nice dress. But then he goes and dumps her in the park and mutilates her. He takes out a knife and cuts her face up so that her picture won't be in the papers. And, uh, I mean, it's it's
5: really brutal i mean the way that i think he actually talks at one stage in the book he wants to drink mel resnick's blood you know he basically wants wants to sort of tear mel resnick's throat out and drink his blood i mean he's yeah it is incredibly brutal i agree and the heist job that 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 mel betrays him for in the book it's an armored car robbery i think there's five of them involved and they all get killed now either mal kills i think mal kills them all you know Really it's I was surprised I've forgotten how hardcore the book was.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He slits two guys' throats while they're sleeping and then shoots one in the back. It's interesting too, you know, and we always talk about setting and that the book is set very much in New York City, so we have Walker taking Lynn's corpse out to Central Park and then yeah, after he mutilates or even steals her clothes, um, so that it makes it harder for them to identify the body and also just leaves this naked corpse in the Park, which is pretty harsh. Setting it in Los Angeles gives it another good noir location, but then also gives you that challenge of these much more wide open spaces. And I think that Borman played into that really well, especially when it comes to the storm drain scenes and just, oh my God. I mean, you've got Alcatraz as a setting up there in Frisco, but to have the storm drain where he ends up setting up Stegman and Carter and using... Basically Carter's own weapon against him by sending Carter out rather than him walking out into the storm drain and having that fake money or the money that we end up realizing is fake out there and then Sicking just clipping those two guys off. And I don't think I'm reading too much into it with this being 1967. It felt very Lee Harvey Oswald to me, him in the top of this bridge, looking down with this high powered rifle and picking these two guys off but i i could be reading too much into it with that one but i do really like just how cold and calculating he is when he's got his uh hood up on the freeway and then he comes back and puts the hood down a so careful with the way that he uh puts his rifle into the case and then puts that in the car takes care of the hood gets in and then yeah he's got that that pipe again like his trademark james b sicking pipe
5: no, I don't think you're reading too much into it. I mean, I think the temper of the time. It's and, and Borman sort of obviously catches on to this. It's you know America in the late 1960s. I mean, there's 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 race riots in all all over the all over the place in big cities. The the nation is just is getting more and more embroiled in Vietnam. You've you you know, it's really filled with the violence of that of that time. And again, that scene I mentioned where they're. Mel Resnick get, falls out of the apartment building, is lying there naked, crushed on the sidewalk, and everyone's just basically going, oh, yeah, look at this. Oh, right, you know, people rushing over to have a look at this. Isn't this amazing? I mean, it really, you know, it, it, and I, I picked that up too. I think, you know, with that assassination scene, it does feel very, very plugged into it to events that had gone on, I think. And people get killed and people get killed. And as I say, Marvin drives that car around, smashing it up left, right and centre people get killed people get shot cars just go by on the freeway no one stops no one says anything there's no there's hardly there's hardly a single cop in the entire film except when they're basically um you know when Metrin Resnick falls out of the apartment block no i think i think you're not, you're not overanalyzing it at all it's very much about the violence of the times in america in the late 1960s pre summer of love especially
3: The Marvin movie that I most associate point blank with is uh, Don Siegel's The Killers, which, of course, was intended to be a television movie. But during the shooting of The Killers, Kennedy is assassinated. And when uh, the network sees the movie, this this bright, lurid TV colors, saturated color, violent film, they're too upset by it because of the national attitude toward violence right now with, with in the wake of, of the Kennedy assassination and they, they, they scrap it and they end up, it ends up getting a a theatrical release rather than a television release. But uh, yeah, it's, it's Marvin and it's Angie Dickinson and it's a daylight noir daylight, uh, uh, wide open spaces, uh, terrible things happen in the daylight too. Um, you know, the, the, the shadows, uh, Walk around in the daytime, and um, yeah, it's uh, I, I associate these movies very closely, and I do think that uh, that, that was just part of the national uh, tenor and part of what they were going for. I think I think you're right there, Mike.
5: Well, it's it's, it's also no coincidence that '67 is also Bonnie and Clyde. So those those two films that really are seen as cause an enormous amount of controversy because of their screen violence, but are also incredibly groundbreaking and popular. So.
2: And that scene in the drainage, uh, place is just yet another time where Walker doesn't kill somebody. He just sends someone to their death instead. You know, we've talked about how this could be seen as a ghost film. There are all the questions, you know, I heard you were dead. It's better to be dead. All these things. I've always seen it as more of a golem story with Yost being the person that creates this Walker golem and just sends him out into the world because he tells him, you know, I don't want you. I want the organization. And basically that's what Walker does is he takes down the organization for Yost slash Fairfax. And it just feels to me like with the way that Marvin stands there and takes Chris's punching, the way that he, you know, is just such an automaton throughout so much of this, with the walking down the hallways, all of these kind of things, it just feels more like Yost is this puppet master who says, Okay, you know, Adam and just puts that on his forehead and sends him out into the world, take care of this for me.
5: The only part of the film that doesn't make a great deal of sense to me is the ending um, in the sense that uh, Marvin doesn't take the money or, or Walker doesn't take the money, which he spent the entire film, as we say, killing slash not killing people.
2: Is it really money, though? That's my question. Yes,
5: that's a good question. I mean, I think it does. The ghost The ghost film, when we talk about the ghost film, the way that at the very end of the film – Walker's character just fades back into the shadows like he's almost hasn't existed. So I suppose that's one interpretation is that, well, he never really, maybe he never existed. So he can't take the money, but yes, I hadn't thought about that, that maybe he just thinks it's another trap.
3: Well, Christine does ask him, you know, what would you even do with the money at one point? She said, what would you even do with it? And I think I've read that, that him, leaving the money there is that his quest his quest is over it wasn't so much the money it was that they paid him they paid me my quest is over uh you know it could be that he sees risk in going down to get it everyone who goes after this money ends up dead maybe it's best but he feels some sort of scales have been righted in that they capitulated to me i may not get this money but they're leaving it you know they 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 coughed it up and uh so that that was my take on on the end and i do i i do love that um i like that it's become kind of uh, i was talking to a, a friend who i know is a, a a stark westlake fan uh the other day uh we watched um the killers i'm sorry the outfit uh together and he was talking about a perception that he had had of the outfit uh and 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 then some subsequent Parker books of um you know he's still going after this money and I was like, well no, actually in the book he he
2: got the money. <laughs> he got the money. Well he got the money and then he lost the money, which is hilarious to me. And I and from what I understand, originally Parker was going to die. And it was uh Westlake's editor who said this character is great. You need to keep this character. And so that's when he rewrites the end and has the cops find him he runs out of the back room at the hotel that he was staying at. He runs out of there with one of two suitcases. And of course he took the wrong suitcase. It kind of feels a little bit like asphalt jungle to me as far as the whole, you know, Oh, what's the use thing with all the money flying away, but he's not being taken off by the cops. He just happened to grab the wrong bag. And so then after that, they've got like a little denouement of him and a few other guys, Robbing um, I want to. I can't remember what type of place it is. It's a a, some sort of gambling take type of thing, and they're robbing it. And he's the only one not wearing. Again, this reminds me of of uh the killing because in there they're all wearing clown masks, and this one they're wearing Huckleberry Hound mask except for him because he's going to get a new face pretty soon. So he gets the new face, he'll get a new identity, and he'll have new adventures. Come back next week and follow the adventures of Parker. As he stars in, I can't remember the second one, if it was The Outfit or The Man with the Getaway Face. But
5: man with the, the Man with the Getaway Face, face I think.
2: And, Jed, you mentioned The Outfit. And just for people listening at home, we haven't mentioned that Parker has been adapted or put into movies since 66. And I hesitate to say that because Made in USA by Godard is not very close of an adaptation of the Jugger, but it's allegedly an adaptation. And the Parker character in that is actually played by Anna Corinna, so it's not really the Parker character. (laughs) And then he's been in a bunch of movies, including The Outfit, and then there was the one movie called Parker, which I'm so surprised that they actually managed to call it Parker. We'll talk about the names uh, as we go forward here, but... Uh, he's been known as a lot of different names throughout the years and played by a lot of different actors. And I think that probably my second second or third favorite uh, adaptation is the outfit where you've got Robert Duvall playing him. But I really like The Split, and I think that that one doesn't get talked about nearly as, as much as it should. Talk about a fucking fantastic cast. I mean, The Split has Jim Brown basically as the Parker character. It's got Diane Carroll, Ernest Borgnine, Jack Klugman, Gene Hackman, Warren Oates, Donald Sutherland. I mean, it is just amazing all of the people that are in that movie.
3: It's amazing all the people that are in that movie, and it's still not great. <laughs> I've got uh, I I rewatched the film and I read the book uh preparing for this, uh, and I was I was surprised how um uh, we can talk, talk about the, the different adaptations in a bit, but um, I, I like the movie. It seems like I should love it. I like it. I should love it, but uh, it doesn't, doesn't add up to, to a movie I love.
5: My two favourite other Parker adaptations are actually two of the films that are the least known. I really rate the 1967 French Parker which is called, and I'm going to butcher this. I'm sorry, French-speaking people out there. I think it's called Maison Soc. Maison Soc,
2: also known as Pillaged.
5: Yeah, Pillaged, Which is uh, that's his, That's the French version of Starks. The score where they basically rip off the entire mining town. It's such a wonderfully low-key. There is a cl- there's a cut of it, people on um, on YouTube with English subtitles. So wonderfully downbeat and low-key and just a great film about criminals being criminals and and, and criminals applying their trade as criminals. No frills. they're just guys that go about their, their business stealing things and things go wrong. And I also think that the French version is really interesting because it alerts us to this whole ecosystem of French cinema in the late 1960s and 1970s, French crime cinema that we just know so little about probably because partly so little of it is also Sort of being cross-fertilized over into English-speaking markets, but I really like that film. And I also really like the uh, gets a lot of hate, but I really like the British adaptation of *Slayground* in 1983, which I just think is a terrific film. Peter Coyote as I can't remember what the uh, I think Stone, I think he's known as Parker is known as Stone. Peter Coyote plays him, and it's this wonderful. That's the one where which the book is set. Parker being trapped in an amusement park, Sleigh Grounds really changes it up, but it's kind of half hard-boiled American, it's a 1983 film, half hard-boiled American style neo-noir, and then the second half of the film shifts to the UK, where it almost becomes this strange Giallo-esque sort of film with this, this killer hunting down. Peter Coyote's Parker character for something that's happened for in relation to a botched job that happened earlier in the film. I think those two films are really, really good. I agree. The outfit is good. I don't think it's the best Parker adaptation, though.
3: Misery Stock. I love that. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Slayground is one I still have not seen. Not not been able to see that one yet. So. Uh... Uh, I've seen the rest of them. The outfit is, feels the most like Parker to me. Having the more Parker I read, the more I think the outfit feels like it. The the Point Blake is arguably a better movie just with the, the, the style, the great elliptical style of it. It's something that uh, I can't argue with. It's power. Um, I really like it. But if, if you're going for Parker, you know, purism, um, then, then I do think um, the outfit is, is is awfully awfully good uh, i actually think the jason statham parker is if you're talking about faithfulness to the uh the book the source material it's about the closest of uh of any of them to uh, you know uh just here's what the book says and here's what we do and um You know, I don't think it's one of the best uh, Parker movies, uh, but it just goes to show faithfulness to the source material is
2: not uh, is not what makes a great adaptation. Even if you look at Point Blank, the Chris character doesn't really exist in the book at all. But I think she's so effective. I mean, there's a prostitute character, Rosie slash Wanda, I think her name is, who gives Parker some information well, Mel's got a prostitute, uh, Pearl that he deals with, who I think Parker inter- interacts with very, very briefly. But Chris is necessary, and they use her very, very well in the movie. And it's not necessarily – I mean, there is a a love scene, but it doesn't necessarily feel like they're in love. And I do love that love scene because it's got her and – walker together and then they roll over and it's walker and lynn together they roll over it's chris and mal together they roll over and i wrote in my notes i think the only thing that was missing is they roll over one more time and it's mal and walker together right. because it's this whole like you know next kind of thing like from rocky horror picture show right
5: don't you hate it when that happens it happens to me all the time you know <laughs> rolling over like that
2: and suddenly john vernon's in your bed
3: yeah Soderbergh did that scene a couple of times, too, uh, in the limey. And then I want to say he did something. I know he did something real similar in the underneath uh, with Peter Coyote and uh, Elizabeth Shoe and maybe even in side effects. I don't remember if it was in side effects or not. But, um, yeah, he's another scene that he, he clearly uh, he loved and, and went back to.
5: It's a loveless love scene, that uh, scene with Angie Dickinson and Lee Marvin. I mean, it's the most unsexy sex scene I've ever seen. I think I'll
3: take like.
5: it. I do like the split as well. I think the split's as a piece of turbocharged sort of pulp. I think the split is really good. It's got a great cast. Great cast. A great cast. But I just think so much of it to me is what does Parker slash Walker look like? And I would just really encourage people to watch that French version of Miss En Sac because the guy who, Parker is called Georges on the film and he's played by this French actor called Michel Constantin, who I don't know a lot about, but he was in a terrific prison break film called La True in mm. 1960. and He always he also was in a really great, uh, I think it's a Bronson film, Violet City in 1970. But for me, Constantin absolutely nails what I think Parker looks like. He's this slab of emotionless slab of a man. He's just great. Really good film. He's on If you can see it, I really would encourage people to try and find it.
2: Quite good. Quite good. So I went down to the Lilly library again for a little research on Parker down in Indiana. And there wasn't a ton of stuff, unfortunately, but one of the most amusing things to me was that they actually had audience reaction sheets and um, reports there, which was great. The audience reaction when they showed it in Encino back in August 1967, not that great. Uh, we had 166 people do their cards and 74 were excellent, 44 were good, but then you had 48 that were fair or poor. A lot of people like Lee Marvin, people hated Sharon Acker for whatever reason. 93 would recommend it to their friends, but 37 wouldn't. But then it's hilarious to read the comments, too, where it's like, what did you like about this picture? What didn't you like? And you'll read completely different things from one person right to another. So, like... Too much violence and too many mix ups, too many violent scenes, the noisy scenes, you know. The scene where Mel unbuttons Angie's dress is obvious and stupid. I could have gone for more
5: of that. In that respect, it's just like putting up something on, on uh social media saying you like a film, yeah? Nothing's changed right. nothing's, cha- nothing's changed that much. Totally like Don't read that. The it's
2: completely like that. <laughs> so some people love the violence and other people just hated the violence. It's like, okay, you yeah, know, great. But it was, it was pretty funny to uh, women did not recommend and reason why. No sense, no reason, no continuity. Film editors must have been drunk. Because Lee Marvin is a great actor and this movie is quite beneath him, why should anyone else be as disappointed as we were? This picture jumped around, was disorganized, etc. Tired of violence and sex just for the sake of violence and
5: sex. (laughs) Yeah, Jed and I are both making yeah and so. Yeah,
2: right, yeah.
5: Why do you go to Mary's?
2: <laughs> too many flashbacks, nothing but sensationalism. The movie house is too darn loud. A few deaf people go to movies. Angie doesn't or shouldn't have to resort to this type of part. She is above this. Wow.
5: And get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> back in, I don't know whether this still happens. I doubt it because there's hardly any cinemas left. But uh, back in the, people, the cinema goers used to, cinema owners used to vote for their favorite or their male and female stars every year I think and I think it was 67 when Lee Marvin was voted the the, mo- the the most popular star with American cinema owners can't remember who the female most popular female star was so it's that whole thing about so people may have bitched about the violence but frankly it drew them in and they got it and it struck a chord and of course, he'd just come off the back of—we haven't talked about this—but Marvin had, had, which is where Borman met Marvin on the set of uh, *The Dirty Dozen*. It's a real, real dad film. I first saw that film. That was 1966, was it? Yeah. Uh,
2: I think it came out in '67.
5: Early '67. So he's making it in '66. That's a dad film. I saw I, probably the first film I saw with Lee Marvin was *The Dirty Dozen*. Uh, I've watched it many times since. Love, love the film. But God, it's. When you think about it and you break it down and you watch it now, it's an incredibly violent
3: I just rewatched that one too, and more than point blank, I was like, I, I do not remember the Dirty Dozen being this violent and nihilistic. And it was like, Oh my God. And yet that was the the much safer bet for American audiences was that one over over point blank for some reason. Um, I, I, they're both great films. I, I love them. But, uh, yeah, it was...
5: When you think about it, that, that the mission in The Dirty Dozen is go to that French chateau. Here's your convicts. Go to that French chateau. Just kill as many Germans, as many German officers as you possibly can. And somewhere along the lines, you're going to disrupt the German war effort. It's like there's no finesse in that mission at all, including including that incredible scene that the fighting's broken out in the chateau. chateau. All the officers have rushed into this underground bunker and they, and the dirty dozen guys just pour all this petrol down this drain and then drop grenades down it. I mean, it's really, as you say, Jed, I mean, the fact that that was seen as a more acceptable option than point blank, mind you, it was, it was the quote-unquote good war.
2: The thing that I kept reading when I was reading about Point blank in Borman's papers was they weren't saying Lee Marvin's coming right off of the dirty dozen. They were saying Lee Marvin is coming off of his Oscar win from Cat Ballou from 65. So he was on top of the world with his Oscar win with that did ship of fools the professionals the dirty dozen and the dirty dozen that to me is the movie that inglorious bastards wanted to be and just was nowhere near i mean the putting this the team together the camaraderie scene i mean donald sutherland inspecting the troops i mean fucking maggot the uh, telly savalas role cassavetes i mean just everybody was somebody and they were all so good
5: that weird slapstick sequence in the middle where they're doing the war game and they manage to beat the sort of properly, the, the dirty dozen, the convicts, beat the properly trained paratroopers led by Robert Ryan, which is a weird, humorous interlude in what's otherwise an incredibly bleak, violent film. So he does point blank. And you've got to say there's some other good films he did, but Marvin's, it's it's on the way down from from there from Marvin because... That's the highlight of his career and he never really does another film that good and, it, and then dies incredibly young. Not only does he have significant undis- undiagnosed post-traumatic shock syndrome, he's also um, a high-functioning alcoholic and the, the booze kills him in his early fifties and Rob's this sort of brilliant actor.
2: I love the story of Borman not knowing exactly how he was going to shoot one of the Alcatraz sequences And that Lee Marvin realizes that his director is in trouble. So what's he do? He puts on an act that he's drunk. It's suddenly like, oh, shit, now we got to shut down production. And then once Borman figures it out, Lee suddenly becomes sober again. I was like, oh, that is really nice. That little story about that, I was like, that's pretty awesome.
3: That's producer as star right there. That's great. I would push back slightly on uh on uh Andrew's point about point blank being the the pinnacle the sort of sharp pinnacle I do think that there were a couple of really good movies and several pretty good movies afterward but uh I'd think the the one two of Marvin and and Borman doing point blank in hell in the pacific that's a really great one-two combination there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure Borman did better after those two. I mean, I've, I've liked a lot of his films, but, but those two are like right at the top of, of uh, what I like about Borman and, and, and what he does.
5: I like the idea of Hell on the Pacific, but I, I don't think it's a great film. I, I like what Marvin was trying to do. I think it's a very cool idea. I don't think it's a particularly good film. And I, I mean, I didn't say that Marvin didn't make any other good films, but I mean, you've got Monty Walsh, I suppose, Pocket Money in 1972. I should say Prime Cut, 1972. That's, yeah, yeah big, big thumbs up to Prime Cut. He was in The Iceman Cometh in 1973. But really, it is, come on, it is sort of downhill. Emperor of the North is great.
2: Yeah, I love Emperor of the North. I love the big red one. I think he was fantastic in that. I haven't seen certain things like Death Hunt or Dog Day, though I've owned them on VHS and now DVD for years.
3: Dog is not great. Death Hunt I have not seen. But yeah, I, I do think there are some some notables. I think Monty Walsh, Prime Cut, Emperor of the North. I have not seen Iceman Cometh, but that might might be pretty good. Spike's Gang is is not great, but it's it's got some some valuable stuff in it.
2: Paint your wagon.
5: Let's not talk about shout at the devil in 1976. I do like him in Gorky Park, but again, he's so he's been so damaged by alcohol by that stage. I think I was reading somewhere that his co-star William Hurt really had to help him out on that film because he was basically so physically addled by alcohol at that stage. And I'm not, I'm not having a go at Marvin because of that. We all have our, we all have our demons, and he had his demons, and he dealt with his demons, demons by drink. Every
3: time uh, he needed a boost, I think William Hurt changed his accent.
5: Anyway, I'm sure your, your listeners will chime in, but I, I think Point Blank is the, is, the, is the pinnacle of his career, I would say.
3: It's not really a, a real precipitous drop the same way it's not a real precipitous peak, you know, uh, Ascension. Uh, there were several good films on on both sides, but yeah, Point Blank is probably my favorite.
2: So let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages
1: sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons
2: there's got to be a better way
1: now there is with good job brain an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun
3: I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image thanks good job brain
1: Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It, it, it's a podcast.
0: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adammeat.com wants to give you more. With 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com
4: Join me, Jamie Benning on the Film podcast particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck Plam! The door opens, it's George everybody gasps George makes a beeline to me I'm literally back against the wall Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Ackbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the
2: Palmen is that tension depends on o'clock. You need to have the sense that time is
4: running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049.
3: Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration.
4: That's the Film podcast with me, Jamie Benning. I am Dave Kittridge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, i like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy. Drag, punk, rock.
0: It was so rebellious and precocious, I guess. The definition of gay to me is freedom.
4: Women gave the show its life, I feel like. Well, it's also a bit of a hunk fest. You guys are hot as hell.
2: You are too kind.
4: That
2: was only only 15 years ago. It's a no-holds-barred talk with iconic creators and performers. It's not white people. It's
1: not, I hate white people. It's dear white people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Malkior and Vendla. And I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, (laughs) shape, or form. I'm always thinking about
3: the audience. Make them feel. Make them laugh and make them cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me.
0: I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it needed to be.
1: Cinema is an empathy machine and and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled david don't no. edit anything of this out <laughs> no no they no. don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory
4: relationship that jim and i have <laughs> we're cutting that part out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine vachon laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwartz hp mendoza and fabulous queens shangela eureka and bob the drag queen i'm sweating
1: the house down oh,
2: mama you never know what's gonna come up
1: you know me i'm so big and strong that eureka and bob actually <laughs> hide behind me and i protect she them. is quite the chihuahua mama she does pop I was up like, wait should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> i think they think i'm the security bitch it's season one of the outcast presented by outfest premiering in the summer of
4: 2020 hope you can join us
2: i go to sleep with you, grinning If this is just to be,
4: My life is gonna be beautiful i sunshine enough to spread It's just like the other sun Tell me quick, ain't love a
2: kick a, have a.
3: In the everything working out oh yeah
2: all right we are back and we are talking about point blank and let's shift gears a little bit into another adaptation of the hunter by donald westlake slash richard stark and i just wanted to read this i sent a fan letter years and years ago to Donald Westlake. And I was so happy when he actually replied. I was, uh, I sent him a piece that I wrote about uh, the Parker movies. And uh, he wrote back with this. I was asking about why Lee Marvin was Walker and not Parker. And he said, uh, Lee Marvin refused to do sequels under any circumstances. So it was agreed that we'd keep the name and not squander it on somebody who wouldn't come out and play anymore. Payback began when Brian Helgelin, intending a small, inexpensive, sharp feature like Red Rock West or The Last Seduction, Gibson entered and life changed. No one told me that the movie was being made. The rights were owned by Warner, who had inherited point blank. So I first learned about it when the announcement was made to the trades that Gibson would appear as Parker. My agent called him and said, you can do anything you want. You can fuck babies in wheelchairs, but you can't call him Parker. (laughs) Look at the contract. They did their idea of negotiation, which went nowhere. Thus, Porter. Porter isn't Parker. Porter is what Ginger Rogers says with her luggage beside her on the ship. Oh, Porter, 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 as we see him, is a mutt. Parker is not a mutt.
5: Go, Don. That's what I can say to that. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. I like payback. I like
2: the first version of payback. So I wrote about this years and years ago before even payback straight up came out, which is the I don't really even want to call it the director's cut because it's not like I consider the work print to be the director's cut because it is it's completely done. It might have temporary music in there because they use a lot of Beastie Boys. They use Papa was a Rolling Stone. I'm not sure if that's what they were going to go with. They do have the opening theme in there, which is interesting. So I, it feels like the music is a choice, but they've got their opening credits. They don't have the end credits yet. And there's only one shot where they have time code on it. The rest of it is all good to go. And it feels like picture lock, but that's the picture that got him into trouble before uh, Mr. Producer Mel Gibson came in and said, yeah, let's make this a lot funnier.
3: I like both versions. I, you know, I, I'm not going to say they're as good or important or impactful as as uh, Point Point Blank, um, but they're not bad crime films. The 1999 version, the theatrical version, is funnier. It's lighter in tone. It's got the voiceover. It's got the sort of, uh, uh, as Andrew was saying, the the wacky lethal weapon energy to it at at points um i i do think the two cuts are are very interesting and and i think they're different enough that they qualify as as different films i saw a critic listing all the parker films and and you know and they didn't include straight up in there and i uh, i was commenting on that and they said well I like the 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 theatrical cut better and i you know that's neither here or there as far as i'm concerned i think they're two different movies uh, and and deserve consideration that way. So um, you know, wh- whichever you like, I, I do think they're they're quite different with an entirely different third act, etc.
2: I honestly consider these three movies. I consider that work print to be a third film before Gibson came in and had Terry Hayes rewrite a bunch of stuff, and they did the voiceover, and they would do like. The little quips and stuff, like when he takes the money from the guy who's homeless, apparently. In the theatrical version, the guy's like help a cripple vet walk again, and then when he takes the money and the guy stands up, Parker says, "You're cured." It's like, okay, great. So, or like when he gets tortured by getting his hands hammered or toes, and then when Maria bellows like, "What happened?" He's like, oh, "I got hammered." Mm-hmm. But I would say that 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 first version, the work print version, is, that's the movie for me. And that one was very interesting because rather than Sally Kellerman, who they got to come back and dub Bronson for Straight Up, it was actually Angie Dickinson doing the voice work in this one. So it was kind of a nice tie back to Point Blank. It's a complete film. It's not one of these work prints where you're just like, oh, yeah, scene coming or any of those things. This sucker felt like it was ready for picture lock and send it out to the public. And that's when they're just like, hey, man, you killed the dog. Parker doesn't get the money and he might be dead at the end. Like he's still alive ish in when he tells Maria Bello to drive. But yeah, you can even see they they really went to great lengths in the straight up version to add a line of dialogue, because in this work print, once he gets the money, it's that same third act where we've got the idea of the platform uh, and the woman who ends up shooting him, which is interesting because – Porter cannot see when women are going to betray him so he doesn't see when Lynn betrays him he doesn't see this woman assassin as being a threat so when she shoots him and he comes down the steps which is interesting too because that's the poster image and he's there he's got the money with him and this homeless guy just comes up and takes the money and leaves and then in the straight up version they take great pains to add a uh ADR line of grab the duffel bag and then you actually Get an insert shot of two hands, uh, his hand allegedly and her hand allegedly padding the money inside of the car. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So that's how we're going to work our way around that. It's, it's to me, all three of these films are a fascinating exercise in editing and how you can change tone through different lines, different ADR, different cuts of these things.
5: I've watched both of these. I've watched the theatrical release and the. Directors cut a couple of times. There you go. That's a good 12 hours of my life. I'll never get back. I think, yeah, I think they're okay. I was really not hugely impressed with either of them. And I think there's various things that I, I mean, they're okay as crime films. It is interesting to sort of think back, as we said, as we've said a couple of times. I was surprised by how similar payback is to the first. Richard Stark book, that did, surprise, that did surprise me going back and reading that. What kind of annoys me a little bit about Payback, especially compared to Point Blank, they're both incredibly violent films, but I just think there's a real, so much of the violence in Payback just feels uh, gratuitous and has no great point to the story. And it sort of it gets a bit much at times, whereas, as, I, as we've said, I mean, I find that with, with, with Point Blank is actually a great film not just that has violence in it, but it is a, riff, a terrific film about violence and masculinity, and, and it's almost, Borman is almost deconstructing that, and I wanted to get that into this podcast for the last hour and a half. He's almost deconstructing that whole notion of violence and masculinity as much as he's also sort of celebrating it, whereas I think in Payback Straight Up, it's just a celebration of it, and especially, especially with Gibson's Cut, which is, has this real tonal discord between this, these points of intense violence and then this oddball Martin Riggs type humor which <laughs> just kind of makes doesn't sort of the, the two don't sit very well for me and i suppose it's time for me to also out myself as not a huge fan of the lethal weapon films either so i mean that
3: can, can you see it in my dna right here it's it's like it's deep in my dna that 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 slapstick and and horrific nihilistic violence is yeah you're more slapstick though am i okay you know. i mean yeah, you're, I you're so. the one I looking so. at me
5: <laughs> <laughs> so but no i just so they're, they're okay films but I don't, I don't think either of either of them are, are great
2: yeah it is interesting how close they are to the hunter especially the Helgeland version and that work print the stuff that they add to me is the stuff that doesn't work the most so the idea of the Chows using the Chinese gang, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to it me. Doesn't that work. It doesn't work. Well, it doesn't make sense to me that Lucy Liu then is a dominatrix, and that she's going out with Mal, even though he was the one that robbed the Chows. It's just like, this is weird. A lot of racist stuff about Asian people in here. <laughs> yep. The addition of the two cop characters, which I thought was slightly interesting. I always love to watch Bill Duke and anything. But again, it's just like, OK, we didn't really need them. I kind of like that Parker, you know, we mentioned how the only time we see cops is when Mal's body is down on the, the ground. I'm trying to think if we see we've got cops at the very end of the hunter uh, when they finally come in.
3: Because I went back looking for him in the hunter and they're in the hunter. They're in they're introduced in the same way. Bill Duke. And uh, is it John Glover? Who's who's the other? No, who's the
2: i can't remember the name of the other one but they're in the uh the card they're, scene they're in stegman's, Jack
5: Conley.
3: yeah they're in stegman's uh uh gambling you know in the back of the the place and uh the cops are there in the hunter they just don't go on to and they even have some of the same lines they're like uh you know it looks like assault to me and uh you know, and Stegman's like, uh, let's take it out. You know, let let's go, let's go talk out. You know, out of earshot of the of these cops about our business. But um, but yeah, they the what's added is that they come back and try to shake Parker down or Porter down in the in uh, payback. But but yeah, there's so many overlapping. I've 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 lose track of what's in the book and what's in, you know, which of the three or four versions of the
2: the adaptation there are. I was very happy to see, uh, John Glover, um, working with William, William Devane. I love Devane. I thought he was pretty good in, in the film. I really like John Glover, who, uh, when he talks about, uh, Mal's record and that he's got the big file on him and he looks in there. Oh, nice artwork too. Just something about him. I really enjoy. And then the other guy, the other bodyguard of Devane. And I can't remember the actor's name, but I mostly know him as I think he was like Gil Grissom's boss in CSI. It, I really like him in in Payback as well. So there's great actors, there's great character actors all throughout this, but yeah, and it just it doesn't necessarily work for me. And I like Greg Henry. I think that he's really good playing a psychotic. Um, but he almost seems too vicious at times and it's like okay i mean he does give me one of my favorite lines though when segments like
4: you know what, val this one's on me okay you see me yeah. reaching for my fucking wallet he's a
5: highlight of this film is uh, david paymer as Stegman. you know the low life sort of which and, and Stegman, as we said is in the is in the original parker book and he's in the is in the is in the original parker book and is in he plays the used car salesman paymer is a real highlight for me in this film just skeezy, sort of low life gangster.
3: To your point, Andrew, I do think that it's closer to the book, both in the actual storyline, but also in. I, I'm not going to say it's closer in tone because because Point Blank hits harder the way that that uh, that the Hunter hits harder tonally than than Payback does. But I, Payback is a pulp. It's it just kind of a pulp pulp film and and the hunter kind of a pulp novel you know uh that, that the uh the borman took and and marvin took and did you said you know like you said added another dimension to it a very personal dimension for uh for both of them that uh you know it's not just a difference in style but uh yeah the the impact of it is different and i do think that makes it special in a way that that payback is not but I like pulp fiction, pulp fiction, and, and I think it's it's not a bad not a bad pulp film.
2: I have a question for you, Andrew. Is it true that the tagline for Payback was laughed out of Australia? It's time to root for the bad guy.
5: I have no idea, Mike. I'm sorry.
2: I always heard that that means it's time to fuck for the bad
5: guy. Well, yeah, root, root, root does mean is an old colloquialism for fuck in Australia. It's not used a great deal anymore. But everyone knows it, so yeah. I don't know pos- quite possibly. We don't use it. We don't use Heading it. Like back that. to the Beastie Boys. Sure. Uh, it's, it is interesting to speculate whether Borman even read the Parker book that he's that the film he wrote. The film he directed was based on. I mean, you could imagine that he would probably, as you say. I mean, Westlake slash Richard Stark, who wrote the Parker series, was a. I wouldn't call him a pulp author, but he was certainly, uh, you know, working in that period of of, of sort of hard boiled paperback original fiction. Back in the days where a crime writer could do one book a year and basically make a living you know um, and you can and Borman comes from a very different cultural milieu and place, probably didn't have much time for those kind of books. I would imagine hence his his uh, disregard for the original script that uh, point blank was based on there's some nice little flourishes in payback, whichever version we're talking about. I do like the fact that Mel Gibson has to totally has to constantly correct people about how much money he wants that kind of I thought that was kind of kind of quite cute but uh it, it's it, the, the sum of the parts do not do not add up to a great deal and it's always i think we should talk to a bit a bit about Gibson a, a very sort of um, brings brings out a lot of contradictory feelings because I think you know um I, I, on one, on the one hand i you know, he was key in terms of the Australian New Wave. Was in some terrific, you know, Mad the Mad Max franchise, Peter Weir's Gallipoli, The Year of Living Dangerously in 1982. In some films, some of my favourite Australian films. I like aspects of how he's matured into this grizzled, bearded, old, hard-boiled actor who is in these sort of is in films like Get the Gringo and things like that. And knuckle was it? Knuckles dragged across concrete.
2: Uh, I think it was just called Dragged Across Concrete.
5: Yeah, I I think he's great in those. But, you know, there's also this other side to him, which is like Marvin. He also has had a struggle with the bottle and has some fairly, let's say, reprehensible views about certain groups of people, including Jewish people and women.
2: What's it to you, sugar tits? That's where Star as producer can be dangerous when he's like, no, this isn't going to protect my image. Like just making payback to be that lighter film. And I will admit like the, the, the teaser trailer, which you can go back on YouTube and watch the teaser trailer. And even the theatrically released trailer, the teaser trailer is a lot of punchlines. It's a lot of hubba 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 kind of stuff, but you're getting a lot of things that aren't going to be in that final movie. And then you watch even the release trailer and you get still more stuff that isn't in the movie. The shot of the woman assassin shooting at Parker or Porter is in almost every single trailer. And she's not there in the version that came out. You know, there's, there's no Chris Christopherson in that trailer. Cause he was added whole cloth. And I want to say they said something in the extras that All of that extra stuff was shot in 10 days, which just seems ridiculous to me. But when I look at it, it's like, okay, so much of it is Chris Christopherson, his son, the Maria Bello character taking more to it and then letting the dog live. So it's just really strange that Gibson was so protective of his of his image. I mean, he read the script. The script is very hard boiled. And then when he sees the final thing, he's like, yeah, no, I I can't be that person. It's like, really? But then the other thing is that he gets to add a torture scene. And I think Mel Gibson loves to be tortured in movies. He loved being tortured as William Wallace. He loved to be tortured in this. He was tortured as Riggs. And then he makes the ultimate torture porn film movie, which is Passion of the Christ. He loves torture.
3: I love torture. Torture, torture, it pleasures me. <laughs> I mean, he was, frankly, uh, I lo- one of the first things I responded to in the crime genre was specifically, it was like hard-boiled detective no- novels. I loved the trope of the detective or the hero getting just the piss beat out of him. You know, usually in the, the third act. I loved it in Die Hard. I loved it in... Um, uh, Blade Runner, I loved that you know like uh, all these things that I responded to so much in and I think I think Gibson and I probably are not saying we share views but I'm saying uh, there's there's probably some makeup there. I think you're absolutely right. he loves to be tortured he loves torture in the movies and I love torture in the movies. I want my heroes to go through some shit. What I don't want necessarily is for them to be able to come back for another movie. I want them to be spent, uh, absolutely tortured out, and not be able to uh, come back for past
2: the end credits. I mean, there is that trope. You know, there is Toshiro Mufune being beaten up to hell in Yojimbo, and obviously. It's not just a fistful of dollars where Clint gets his ass handed to him. There is that whole thing of let's beat up the main character and then he has to come back from it. I mean, that's, you know, the first few Steven Seagal films. It's yeah. like, okay, cool. That's great. You know, Chow Yun fat getting his fingers shot off and he has to practice and come back in um, full contact. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great trope, but yeah, it's just funny yeah. how much Gibson seems to revel in being tortured.
3: I mean, frankly, give me Gibson getting tortured over Vin Diesel or the rock never getting toward, you know, like no one ever gets the best of them in anything. Uh, yeah, I, they don't even get a splinter. No, I want my guys beat the fuck up and then be able to stand up again, barely and finish a job or, or you know, get some kind of like, it's the coming back from that, that is really important to me on some level. And, and I think, Clearly Gibson feels the same way.
5: But you don't want you don't want your character to be tortured to the life and then stand up and say, Hey, surfs up punk. <laughs> I
3: don't well, I don't know. <laughs> you yeah, know, so that's
5: that's that uh, John McLean did yeah, it. Yeah, you want John McLean did it. You want a tonal well, the whole tone of those uh diehard films that's you want a coherent tone, which is what I what I dislike about payback is it's no there's no coherence to it.
3: Growing up, I, I liked the the Lethal Weapon sequels. I really don't any longer, but that first one, I still stand by. I love it. Uh, it's it's part of my DNA. As I was
2: saying that, you know, um, I do think they changed. No, once Joe Pesci gets introduced, I check the fuck out. So I'll bring this back to Point Blank. Then
3: reading that that Dwayne Epstein bio of uh, of Lee Marvin. When he, in an interview said, I think it was talking about M squad and, and he said, there's not enough violence on TV. It got a big headline, but I think he, w- he was serious in it. And, and he was very, uh, very serious about the, you know, he said, every time I'm doing violence, I want to make it the most, I want you to recoil from it because I've seen violence and it, and it's awful. And it's I think that's what he's talking about is is this consequenceless violence like people talk about how much violence is on TV since TV was invented. But, you know, he's saying but but it's not violence. There's no consequences to it. There's no um, you don't you don't feel it uh, the the way I'm trying to make you feel it. And so I don't think there's enough violence on TV.
2: So a couple of the things I want to point out real quick, since we're talking about Parker so much here, is that. And this isn't an advertisement, but right now, if you go out to Audible, I think every single Parker book is available. It's one of those, like, when you have a membership, they offer certain things as, like, bonuses, so you can get certain podcasts or, like, classic stories, especially things that are in the public domain. But for whatever reason, right now, all of the Audible versions of Parker—and I want to say they have over 20 uh, adaptations of his stuff for Audible— you can get them all right now and just throw them all in your library. So I just listened to the hunter again recently. And the guy who does the voice is really good. And he does everybody's voices and stuff. I have to say he did a great job and his Parker voice is pretty cool.
5: It's not Mel Gibson.
2: It's not Mel Gibson. No, (laughs) there's no Australian accent to this Parker. And the other thing is, I don't know if you guys ever had a chance to read um, Darwin cook, who unfortunately passed away way too young. But his comic adaptations of some of the Richard Stark books, and I think there were four adaptations, but some of too, them Too have, few. Too few. Yeah, so he did The Hunter, The Outfit, The Score, and Slayground, but then with like the outfit, I think it's got part of the man with the getaway face in there. So I haven't read through everything, but I was reading The Hunter. So good and I love his art style.
3: Man with the Getaway Face was just like a little slip. There was like a little promo to bridge the gap between Hunter and the outfit. So it wasn't the whole novel, but it was a little excerpt uh, that was given away free, I
2: believe. So I've got it around here somewhere. Oh, maybe like a free comic book day type of thing? Right, exactly. I always loved his art style, and I didn't know if it would go with Parker or not, but he's kind of got that throwback uh, almost like shag type of art to it and it's great because parker a lot of times is just all the stuff that's going on in parker's mind so you're just seeing all of these frames with no dialogue and it's just seeing especially like the build-up of parker as he gets back on his feet at the beginning with the whole idea of him getting the uh, license and then the checkbook and the way that he uh doesn't give the waitress enough of a tip and stuff, and, and she's kind of throwing herself at him. I just like all of these interactions are without any sort of dialogue at all.
5: It's because those comics catch, his art really catch that aesthetic of late of 1960s America. You know, the used car stands, the diners, the the way they dress, Las Vegas, you know, the, the hoods. You know, I think that's why it works, even though there's minimal dialogue in in those um, in those cuts cart- in in that in those graphic novels. So I shouldn't call them cartoons; those graphic novels.
2: Well, minimum dialogue, and also at least in what I read, minimal color. It was just two colors, which was fantastic. I was like, "Wow, you can do all that with just well." And I was counting white as a color, so just the blue and the white.
5: And as for the Parker books, well, I, I think they work. I mean, I'm not people, you know. There's for, people who aren't familiar with the Parker books, there's basically how many did he do the first tranche of Parker books? He did a certain seven books and they're very hard, they're very hard-boiled. And then I, and then he did the, the second and then he sort of got pissed off that Richard, Richard Stark was a bigger name than Donald <laughs> Westlake, so just went, bugger that, I'm going to give these away. And then he came back to them later on and did another... I don't know, 10, 12, something like that, and the, the second tranche of, the second wave of Parker books are good but more more, humor, more humorous and, uh, you know, I mean, and, and I think your comment, Jed, about how um, that Jason's Statham Parker film, I didn't think it was terrific, but I do think it catches the spirit of the second wave of those Parker books very well. The first group of those Parker books, they're so good though because they're essentially basically all around the same fulcrum, which is there's a job. Group of guys come together, group of guys, occasionally a woman come together, do the job. There's complications. The heist always goes wrong. And then Parker has to basically sort his way out of the mess or get the money back or get revenge on someone who's dudded the heist or taken the heist money. And they're all essentially there. And it's, you know, it's that, it's that joy of reading heist gone wrong sort of books that I think make those Parker books such great reading still. And they're not, and they're not over determined. They're only about 150 pages, except for Butcher's Moon, the last of the first wave of those Parker books. They're, they're they're short reads. You're not, you're not being, you're not having to read 400 pages. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Michael Connolly.
2: Well, and he just pumped them out too. So the Hunter was 62, in 63 he had the Man with the Getaway Face, the Outfit, the Mourner, and the Score jugger 65 the 7th 66 uh let's see rare core coin score 67 green eagle score also 67 and then there's also donald westlake books inside of there as well which was nuts Oh sorry the handle was also in there as 66 and we should also say that this whole idea of your uh, your pseudonym getting more play than you, the author, I think that also it helped uh, lead to Richard being the first name of Richard Bachman, which was uh, Stephen King's alter ego for a while, and then I think that also kind of led into the dark half where you've got the other author gaining more attention than the than the primary person. That kind of schism between personalities.
5: So when does Westlake start writing scripts?
2: Uh, that's a good question, because I know he definitely didn't i mean Jed, you mentioned the Grifters and he um a- a- adapted that one, which stuck about a powerhouse uh, have you done, have to... you done that
5: film on the show
2: we haven't oh. we definitely should
5: yes that's i have been mean to ask you that anyway but he wrote, he wrote a half he wrote quite a few film scripts with which is the Grifters is the one I know really well, but I know that wasn't the only one he wrote he did, like the stepfather and all that
2: he wrote at least one episode of Super train. Let's see. Oh, it's a. uh, It was basically the Love Boat, but set on a train. I've only watched it because Timothy Carey was in one episode. Let's see. As far as produced screenplays, he did Cops and Robbers in seventy three, Hot Stuff in seventy nine, The Stepfather in eighty seven, Why Me uh, in nineteen ninety, The Grifters in nineteen ninety, and Ripley Underground in two
5: thousand five. Yeah, I'm familiar with The Stepfather. And the Ripley film, of course, the Grifters film is just a that that's that's one of those films that gets an annual watch from me. You know, always a terrific film.
2: I remember when I was doing my research that there were a lot of other adaptations of his work that never came to be. Plus, he adapted his own work, Uh, so I think he adapted a version of the score. And I want to say that there's a script for Green Eagle score that was kind of bouncing around out there for a while. I can't remember where I ended up stopping reading the Parker books because i never read all of them, but I want to say it was somewhere around either rare coin score or green eagle score.
5: I mean, so there's, I know that there's, there's an official Donald Westlake website, but um, it has no archive that I'm aware of. So there's no, to my knowledge, and I, I could be wrong, there's no central repository of papers, scripts, letters, so where is that material? Because that would be fascinating because Westlake's fingerprints really are over, the, over crime fiction and film in the 60s and 1970s and 80s. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And, of course, as you, as you mentioned, it's not just the, the Parker character that gets a, that gets a film treatment, uh, Grofield. The Grofield gets a um, treatment with the Hot Rock, I think, which is a great little, I'd call it more a caper film, but it's a terrific film.
2: Now, this isn't official Westlake archive, which I agree there should be one if there isn't, but there's a great website called violentworldofparker.com, which, um, luckily, uh, Trent and I have known each other for years and years. He provided a lot of insight when I was originally writing about Parker stuff. I can't remember. I think he just wrote recently about Misa Sek. So, um, he's still writing. He's still doing stuff around that website. Obviously. We're not getting a whole lot of Parker these days, unfortunately. I was really hoping that that uh, Statham movie would lead to more Parker, but unfortunately, that's not a thing. I was like, oh, cool, they finally can call him Parker for whatever reason, maybe negotiations with the estate. But I was like, all right, wh- where's the next one?
3: Uh, you know, in this day and age of getting sequels no one's asked for, I'm not asking for that, hoping that they'll they'll do it down the road. So. Uh keep it alive keep the hope alive i actually revisiting it for this podcast I mean, i've seen it probably three times now but i read the book and then watched it and i was like damn they they really stayed really close to the book there is a lot of stuff in it that that is what i come to parker for all those little weird underworld details and just him like the whole sequence with him in, in new orleans where he just kind of busts into this small time gangster shit and disrupts it and gets what he needs. He gets out and i like, yeah, that's what I'm here for. That's, that's what I, that's what I, I'd, I'd rather get that than, you know, a fourth Expendables film.
5: Yeah. And a, gr- a great cast of bad guys too. I mean, yeah, I think headed up by Vic Mackey, by Vic Mackey, who's, I can't remember what Vicky Mackey from the shield,
3: Michael Chiklis and Wendell Pierce and Clifton Collins Jr. And Nick Nolte because I'm also looking at David Lynch films right now um, for uh, an episode, and I watched Wild at Heart and I watched Zardoz, and they're both so tied to The Wizard of Oz. I had to watch The Wizard of Oz again in the middle of those. Tonight, when I was watching Point Blank one last time, the scene, the first scene where they go to see Carter's office and everything's green, it's very much to me like The Emerald City. And when v- John Vernon goes in to see him, he goes to see the wizard, and the wizard says, I'm not going to grant your request. I'm going to send you out on a quest instead. And then the second time we get into that space, it's Lee Marvin busting in and ripping the man out from behind the curtain and dragging him out of the place by his ear. And I was like, oh, shit, between this and Zardoz, like, I don't know, maybe John Mormon's got a, a, a Wizard of Oz thing as well uh that definitely seemed that way to me
5: yeah i spent the entire time you were saying that because you said you had people around earlier tonight you having your in-laws around the dinner table but the tv set being on the edge of the table and you just watching point blank while they're all talking pretty much
2: (laughs) we're going to go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show husband can take care of himself nice night for it ain't it mr o'hara you didn't answer me mr o'hara you ought to speak when you're spoken to i'd hate to have to report you
0: to
4: the lady's husband i said it's a nice night for it hey mike if you'll so pardon me this intrusion there's a couple of police officers out here cost I don't speak their language, see, and they wants me to identify this guy. What's the Spanish for drunken bum? Mrs. Bannister, can you think of any reason why your husband would want to hire a divorce detective other than to watch you? My object! As a matter of fact, you and Michael O'Hara have kissed each other, haven't you? To name one occasion, you were seen in the aquarium of this city kissing each other. Do you deny that? No. No further questions.
2: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Orson Welles' The Lady from Shanghai. Until then, I want to thank this week's co host, Jedediah Diane Andrew. Jedediah, what's been keeping you busy, sir?
3: Nothing has been keeping me busy lately But because of this episode The the Alcatraz uh, Content I want to recommend a, uh, An anthology Of Alcatraz-inspired crime stories That I had a story in from a few years ago Called Hard Sentences Edited by David James Keaton And Joe Clifford uh, Put out by Broken River Books Who also put out my novel Peckerwood uh you can still get this one in print or on kindle uh from amazon um i wrote about the joe bowers escape attempt uh i wrote a a fictional account of that that uh, that that uh, uh marvin seems to be uh, recreating to some degree at the beginning of uh, point blank a lot of good stories in this anthology uh since lee is no longer in print i'd say go go check this one out and Andrew,
2: how about yourself?
5: Uh, I'm, I do spend time every now and again thinking about. So Lee, the book that Jed just uh, mentioned was uh, back when I was one third, one fourth of a small press called Crime Factory. We put out a book called Lee, which was sort of which Mike wrote the introduction for, and that was a story, That was a that was a, an anthology of of, not, of stories about Lee Marvin, and I still think it was the best book that Crime Factory put out. And that needs to go back into print. I need to, to look into that. I've, I've got various projects on the boil, but um, the third of the sort of pulp, popular fiction publishing histories I've done with PM Press, our uh, Dangerous Visions and New World, Radical Science Fiction 1950 to 1985, is finally about to hit bookstores in America and is also going to be shipped out to the countless people who have pre-ordered it and to the people who got it on the Kickstarter campaign recently. So that's, that's exciting.
2: And, Andrew, where is the best place for people to keep up with you?
5: The best place to people, for people to keep up with me is um, on my website, www.pulpcurry.com. You can also find me on um, Twitter as at PulpCurry, because I'm branded.
2: Well thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join our community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.